Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL and podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Today, our guest is Sarah Jones. Sarah is the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, a 100% corporate free and liberal-oriented media empire. She focuses on not only what's going on inside the Beltway, but also what's going on in America outside the Beltway bubble. Her analysis has been featured on several national radio, television, and print outlets. She comes from a background in TV and film, where she was a two-time Telly Award winner. She hosts Politicus News and co-hosts Politicus Radio. She has been identified many times as a Twitter influencer in politics, most recently had a viral video with 12.3 million views, which is more views than Robeson and I have ever gotten for Off the Record. But now that Sarah's joining us, I'm sure our show today will get 12.3 million views. She's a member of the White House press pool, has covered everybody important, uh, and we're really pleased to have Sarah Jones with us on Off the Record. Welcome. Thank you so much. What a great introduction. I, don't, I can't promise 12.3 million. I can't get that for my own news videos. <laughs> well, you know, aspiring to greatness is what Robeson and I are all about all the time. So, you know, when Paul was in Congress, we used to say, hey, look, we can get you news coverage anytime you want. It may not be good, but I'm sure we can make this show go viral if you really want to. Exactly. <laughs> We yeah, can shoot well, for that too. Uh, well, I won't, we won't, we'll save those stories for another time uh, about how, how, the, how the press opportunities really work in Congress and what they're really about. But I'm curious, I, I, I always like to let our listeners know a little bit about who the person is behind the bio, because people, you know, everybody, people, you have a great bio. It's really interesting. But how did you get to where you are? And, and talk, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Politicus USA. Um, what brought you there? And, uh, and, and what was your journey like? I would love to tell that story. It's very strange and kind of unique story because I didn't come by this traditionally. So um, I was working in TV and film. I was producing things. I also um, anchored the military news as a fill-in person uh, at Fort Stewart for um, Marne, the third infantry. So I, you know, I've been on camera for a long time throughout my earlier career in film and TV and then got into producing. Um, I was in the beginning of the Obama administration, I would be listening to news and I was getting so angry. I, I, I hate to admit that it, it came from this, but this was the source of why I started writing. So I didn't like the takes that I was hearing from people. I kept thinking, why is no one talking about what matters to the people? Why are they arguing, you know, about um, just kind of, the Republicans would often get this kind of level of hysteria going that would capture all the news instead of maybe the policy that was being presented that was actually going to help people. So I started writing and um, several places that like, you know, blogs that, that were around asked me if I wanted to write with them. And 
Um, but I had seen this little blog, Politicus USA, and I really liked the analysis on there and the focus on policy. So I uh, submitted something in writing to him and he accepted me. And then I started writing there every day after I got off my job producing. You know, I'm sure both of you, <laughs> what producing is like, because I know both of you have um, touched uh, in the media in that area as well. I think you, Paul, had with music. And so, you know, it's a big job, um, a lot of pressure. So I would get home and, and write stories from uh, that I thought needed to be told. And then um, the one day there were all these tech problems and Jason who uh, started Politicus USA, I asked him what's going on with this? And he said, well, you know, we need this money. I said, oh, I'll give you the money. So I just started investing in the kind of infrastructure of, of the, the website and it started to grow and it really grew under Obama. Um, it is almost like a, kind of associated with his kind of brand of politics, if you will, because we just started trying to explain to people what was going on. Um, and I, I got really upset. I'll, I'll make this short. I know we don't want to go on and on about this, but I, I got really upset during when Obama was um, trying to pass the Affordable Care Act and and it finally did pass. And then people were trying to get on the exchanges and this sort of beltway narrative was continually hounding about how the exchanges were not working perfectly all the time. And they did have tech problems for some of that was because they weren't funded. You know, the Republicans pulled some of the funding. But uh, I thought, why are you talking about like people who don't have insurance don't care that they have to call to get on this insurance. They just need the insurance, their family, um, their loved ones who are sick, they need the insurance. So that's how this how I got here. Um, I, I worked in Los Angeles for a couple of years in film and then I kind of moved all over the place with TV and now I'm here in Pennsylvania surrounded by um, a lot of Trump supporters. So it's a, a different, it's a change for sure. Wow, that's what a really fascinating uh, route you've taken to, to what you do. And I, I've really uh, sort of enjoyed as we've gone back and forth about what we want to, to cover today because man, is there a lot going on. I was really interested in the writing that you've done about the psychology of, of Donald Trump. And here you are embedded among a very heavily Trump supporting area. So I think that would probably give you some insights into this very odd relationship that Trump has almost like the abuser in a relationship um, and his supporters sort of lapping it up um, and, and, literally saying in polls that there's nothing, 62% of Republicans in polls say that there's nothing that Trump could do, including shooting someone on Fifth Avenue that would cause them to break up with him. So how do you see that playing out now that we're going through this sort of final breakup with him in office? Uh, do, do you see peril in that? Um, why is it playing out like this? I do see peril in it. And I don't want to say that to be fear mongering. I think we're going to be okay, but I think it's going to be tough going right now. It is very similar to, in my view, uh, I have a psychology degree and it's not worth much, but um, <laughs> it is some kind of gives me perspective into politics in a slightly different way, perhaps. So to me, Trump behaves very much like an abuser, and he certainly his actions back that up, and he's behaved that way his whole life, and I'm pretty sure that he was uh, abused as a child, and, you know, on and on, we can 
go into that. His his uh, niece certainly has. Um, but so what happens when a woman leaves an abuser that they say that's the most dangerous time? And I think that that is a parallel to what's going on in the country right now. And you can see that Trump is trying to put us in national security peril. He's trying to uh, basically destroy the country um, on his way out. And a lot of it is punishment, uh, attempts to control, which, you know, he's always got to be in control. So he's now going after Republicans. I mean, he's, um, you know, going after Bill Barr and Brian Kemp and the Georgia Secretary of State and uh, saying, you know, his people are saying Christopher Krebs should be shot, um, who, you know, was the first director of the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infra Infrastructure Security Agency, who said that the election was not rigged. And so these are the threats that they're lobbing out towards anyone who won't uh, adhere to their narrative. And so I think we're just seeing the beginning of the vengeance and uh, we won't know everything he's done, of course, till he's long gone. And I suspect, of course, that President-elect Joe Biden will be blamed for some of this. And I think that's exactly what Trump wants is for him to, for Biden to be stuck having to come into this complete chaos where uh, he can't be a good president. And of course, you know, one thing that's always been a question in my mind with abusers is if you don't want people to leave you, why don't you just treat them well? And I asked the same question of Donald Trump. If you really wanted to be a good president, you know how jealous he has always been of Barack Obama. Why don't you try to do the job? Because Because he has had so many opportunities to show up and he's been given more second chances than any president I can remember in history. And yet he has continuously and relentlessly um, proven that he's not interested in doing the job and he demands felty and he demands, you know, that we all um, worship him basically. And so that's what he has with his supporters. He has this very, I would say, um, I mean, it is to the point where it's it's cult-like, and I think that that we saw the makings of this really with Sarah Palin, I in my view, and then the the whole way that the right-wing media started to take over and really influence mainstream media. Which there was a study that came out about that a few months ago that kind of got buried always, you know, in the Trump chaos. But it's, they have been really successful at pushing the narrative in mainstream media, uh, right-wing news outlets have been. And so the, the more hold they've had on who tells the story about what's happening, the more ability they have to, to have this bubble of a cult that no, that those people don't need to, is, is not challenged and don't need to get out of. And I, I run into that here where um, I have a friend who is a very um, ardent Trump supporter. And he said to me the other day, well, we're just never gonna know what happened with this election are we? And I said, actually, we do know. We know exactly what's happened to this election. And if you would look at some mainstream outlets, you would see that. There's no question what's happened here. Joe Biden won. He won by a large margin. Um, so, but they're not getting the news from the same places that those of us who aren't in that club get the news. So that, that is the problem. So, Paul, I, oh, yeah, let, yeah, hey, I think over me, to you. Let me just follow up on, on, on one 
um, one aspect. I mean, it's clear, it's been clear to Mary Trump, Donald's niece, who recounted uh, the, 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 the source of this particular pathological narcissism. Uh, many psychiatrists have quietly weighed in about his diagnosable mental illness. Um, this it's 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 Shakespearean in 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 dimension. It's it's a it's a huge tragedy for the country that this mad guy, uh, who's now venting and spewing all over us, um, was elected in the first place. But. I, I guess in, in, we have a few minutes left, and I'm just curious about your perspective, Sarah, with the Republicans who you live amongst and who you see every day, now that Trump is going after Republicans with the same vengeance that he re previously reserved for women, the disabled, uh, African-Americans and Democrats. Um, now that, I mean, he's going after the, his own stooge bar. He's going after all these high level Republicans. Does that have any impact at all on the folks that you're seeing out, uh, out where, out where you are and the folks you're, you're, you're talking to? Well, you're going <laughs> to, nobody's going to like this answer. It has zero impact. And the reason is, if you go back to the analogy of the abuser, many women who are courted by this kind of very charming person before they realize he's an abuser or they know that he abused someone else, they tell themselves and they believe that that won't happen to them because they're different, they're special. And Republicans are all doing the same thing. I mean, you could see the shock that Brian Kemp had, for example, and, and the Georgia Secretary of State. Well, I think it was he who said that he had supported uh, Trump and donated to him and he didn't understand why he was coming after him and his family. Each person, it happens to them and they try to uh, warn others, but the people aren't, they're not listening because uh, one of the Trump supporters here said to me, I don't really care what Trump does. I just like his policies. And I said, what would those policies be? And they said, well, the border wall. I said, you know, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make sense, right? It's like, right. That, that wasn't right. even built. So, yep. yep. Well, we get it. We're, we, we get it. Your perspective on this is really clear and it's really kind of frightening. We're talking to Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL Podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be back with more from Sarah Jones. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL right here in Concord, New Hampshire, and podcast all over the known universe on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We have the great pleasure to be speaking with Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Sarah has an incredible background in journalism, in television, and has got her ear to the ground outside the Beltway bubble, which is very, very important. So uh, here's a question. Um, there were lots of Trump supporters, former Trump supporters in the Midwest who broke narrowly for Biden, but they broke for Biden. 
Um, and there were all kinds of issues at play and all kinds of factors at play in that break. Uh, the Biden campaign, um, unlike in 20, the Democratic campaign in 2016, really honed in on those Midwestern states that were going to be critical for an electoral college uh, victory. Um, what was that about? What did you see? What did you hear? Uh, and what can you tell us about why this happened? Well, for many years before the election, I make a point of going around, uh, traveling around Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and just talking to voters and asking them how they feel about things. So it's kind of an informal interview, you know, polling, if you will, but on the ground, um, just to get a sense of what's going on. And I saw really starting in 2018, this breakaway from Trump here in, in Pennsylvania. And then I noticed in the this summer in Ohio and in Michigan, I saw changes on the ground in, in conservative areas where I started seeing these signs pop up that said, we believe that black lives matter. Um, we believe in science. And I think that, you know, it all started with when Republicans, when Trump gave this tax cut to the rich, that was a problem here in Pennsylvania for him. And then it just, it just built and COVID really made this, uh, made turn this around. But I also want to give credit to Joe Biden because I think he pulled off a huge feat. He got he got uh, red rural voters, uh, Trump voters, some to break away from Trump and vote for Joe Biden, as well as the suburban voters that Trump had gotten in 2016. So somehow Joe Biden managed to appeal to both of those. And <clears throat> Jason Easley, who writes uh, for Politicus USA and, and started it, he was writing things before the election about how in Pennsylvania, you don't need to get, um, you know, you don't need to win these Trump areas. You just have to peel away some votes. That's what Obama did. It's what Governor Wolf did. And that is exactly what Joe Biden ended up doing. He cut into Trump's lead. He did it in Wisconsin. He did it, you know, in the suburban areas outside of, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, the three areas, I think it was the uh, Milwaukee suburbs, they're very conservative and white and wealthy. And Waukesha, I don't think I said that right. I never say that name right because I got attached to it in this certain way. <laughs> but there's, there's, I know long before, because we're, I don't know if you remember, but it was, but it's been in the news constantly every election. It seems like they have issues there. Um, but they, so he cut into Trump's, those are areas that were highly Republican and they, they are still Republican, but Biden cut into that lead and you, you know, you only need to get to cut into that lead a certain amount before you win. And that's what he did. He cut into uh, Trump's lead in Michigan. And for example, in Macomb County, which is a sort of white working class County. I, I grew up in Michigan. So uh, I was very surprised to see, um, you know, Trump, that lead get cut into. Um, so I think Biden did a great job of making this about economic issues, making it about decency. And I think that's where we ended up with suburban voters. I know that women in particular, uh, the white women that Trump had appealed to in 2016, and of course we don't have all this data back yet, but I was seeing over and over again and in speaking to people that many of those women 
could not support him after what he was doing with the, the child separation policy, the, the children in the cages. It was just a kind of a bridge too far for some people. So, so here's a question for you. Um, should Donald Trump be prosecuted? And I, I asked this in the context of I th what I pick up in Democratic circles is that this is a burbling debate. And I know you've done some thinking about this. And look, not that Joe Biden gets to decide. In fact, he shouldn't. That's the whole point, right, is that presidents should not be telling their Department of Justice who and who not to prosecute. But as you know, the president very much sets the tone for uh, who is uh, uh, you know, whether or not to, uh, for example, pardon someone um, and how aggressive the Department of Justice is going to be for Trump era crime. So, so what do you think? Well, I have to be honest with you on this and it's, I feel very strongly that Democrats need to prosecute anyone who has violated the law. And I think that that's gonna be a big challenge for the Democratic party. I know civility is a big um, sort of, you know, value of the party and nobody likes to go into office it's kind of an unsaid thing that you're not going to go in and prosecute the last people for what the last administration because that sets up this bad precedent um, of political prosecutions so absolutely agree with you and i don't think that joe biden would ever consider a politically based prosecution that's not something that's not who he is it's not how or nor is it the people that he has uh nominated so far for many of his key positions. So, but uh, absolutely they have to be prosecuted. And the reason why is, you know, we keep doing this where we let presidents get away with crimes. And then the people who, who are inclined to do that keep pushing that further and further. And as we saw with Trump, we have not the, the, the stop gaps. We don't have the protections that we thought we did. And so we have to get that back in order, or I, I don't think that we have a chance in this country, you know, after uh, Joe Biden. I, I would be very frightened, frankly, if Democrats cannot manage to do that. Part of being a good person and being someone who is, quote, nice, which I think Democrats are a little too attached to, is you have to set boundaries. And these boundaries have been crossed way, I mean, we are, we can't even enumerate, we don't have enough time to enumerate the, the possible crimes, the, the violation of ethics that have been uh, constantly uh, done by this, you know, his, his administration, his children, um, and himself. So absolutely, they need to be prosecuted if they have committed crimes, if there is evidence of those crimes, it needs to be done. And people need to just, you know, buck up, I mean, why, why would he be a, a immune to criminal behavior when the rest of us are not? That's not the whole premise of this country. But I realize that is how it actually operates, but that's wrong. And I think part of what we're trying to change in this country is that the law should apply to everyone, including wealthy, white, quote, businessmen. You know, uh, uh, let me offer just a, a quick perspective. Um, I think this is a, uh, a really, really difficult issue in so many ways. Um, in, in, in my background, uh, I started my career as a prosecutor. Um, I was a, a state attorney general, assistant attorney general, and I, uh, part of my beat was white collar crime. So I, I prosecuted significant white 
white collar criminals, uh, in addition to your basic homicide. Um, and uh, the prosecutions I undertook were were not um, really they 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 weren't uh, in the political realm. Uh, I wasn't prosecuting politicians. I was prosecuting uh, people who had stolen large sums of money. Um, in it, what we're dealing with here is is really a one of a kind uh, situation. We've got uh, a president and an administration who have busted every norm. Uh, pre that previously we held as basic in our democracy. Not only have they busted those norms, they have acted with impunity for the basic principle that no person in this country is above the law and that we are a nation of laws, not of men. So that's kind of, that's, I see that as a fundamental concern. And assuming that Trump and his family and others um, may have, and there may be clear and convincing evidence, um, if, if not evidence that uh, is sufficient to convince a member, you know, the department, an independent department of justice that crimes have been committed. Uh, and assuming that Trump hasn't left the day before his term is over, <laughs> handed it to Pence and said, Pence, pardon me, all my family and everybody else you can think of. And assuming he hasn't tried to pardon himself, which gets us into a whole other wicket, the, there, is a, there is a terrible choice facing um, Biden and the administration uh, because number one, they're not, if the Department of Justice, the new Department of Justice is set up correctly, uh, there should be an independence at the Department of Justice around these decisions. Uh, because the Department of Justice and the Attorney General of the United States represents the people, not the administration or the presidency. So, so some of this may be out of Biden's control, but assuming that he has a quiet word uh, with an attorney general, there is a compelling argument of going both ways. One, Democrats routinely have been seen as weak. Will this make people think Democrats are strong or will this politically simply inflame violence? And um, is there a compelling argument that says the other business at hand to dig us out of the hole that Trump has dug us into is so deep uh, and it takes so much to deal with that if we are distracted by the prosecution of Trump, it simply gives Trump more center stage than we want to give him. Um, and oh, by the way, the New York state uh, authorities have an ongoing investigation. Let them handle it. Let them go after Trump uh, and don't even make the decisions about what to do until New York has decided what it's going to do. Because who knows? I mean, they may all end up in orange jumpsuits up in Sing Sing. <laughs> right. 
I mean, you raised so many issues because I think the, the big cost here for Democrats is where you're going to put your energy. And we saw when, um, when you know, one thing I'm really happy about with Joe Biden is that he's already been in the White House. He can hit the ground running and he's appointed people who have a lot of experience. So hopefully um, they won't have the same issues that you see with a lot of new presidents of taking time to get up and running, but you still have to choose where you're going to spend that political capital. I don't want to see Joe Biden spend his political capital on Donald Trump. Um, and, and if that means the prosecutions, that's, that is a, a real issue. But I'm going to say that one of the things I'd like to see Democrats do is take some of the power that Donald Trump took and use that to fix these problems. I, and I have to say that I, I've always been kind of a, an incrementalist. So this is a strange thing for me to arrive at this point. It's only because of four years of this absolute assault on democracy. But Donald Trump isn't gonna start behaving just because they don't prosecute him. He is going to cause problems and take center stage every day. That's going to be his number one goal in life, to troll Joe Biden and to troll this country and punish this country for not choosing him again. So we, there's no you know, reasoning with him and making nice with him. He's going to take center stage and he's, he's going to do that as long as the media goes along with it. I would like to see the Biden administration address some of the issues that have been happening in social media where the, uh, especially Facebook, where conservative outlets have been given all the, the algorithm was changed to favor them. And so now then you have this bubble happening where people don't have access to, you know, I, I'm going to say other points of view, which AKA reality. Um, and, and that has to happen. We have to get a handle on how people are being informed. Otherwise, anything Democrats do is going to be, they're going to be crucified for it. We saw it under, you know, under Obama. We already see Mitch McConnell committed to his obstruction platform yep. again. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL Podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. We're talking with Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA. We'll take a short break. We're going to come back and talk about what's going on in the Beltway bubble with Mitch McConnell and the McConnell Follies. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL, podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes. And our very special guest today is Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. We have been talking about politics in America, what it means, what it's about, what has happened, the particular pathology of the madman still in the White House treading not very softly on his way out. And now let's just turn our attention from Donald Trump to one of his henchmen, Mitch McConnell. So Sarah, what is going on with things like the spending bill, the COVID bill? What, what are you seeing? Uh, what's the latest? What's the hottest? And what can we expect to happen in, um, as we run up over these next few weeks to an inauguration on January 20th? Well, as you know, we have just a few weeks before we uh, hit another shutdown. 
and Mitch McConnell is doing his obstruction, you know, uh, well, I don't even know what, <laughs> that's just his, his persona, right? It's just everything he does. So he, um, on Tuesday, he rejected a bipartisan $908 billion stimulus plan that was going to help people uh, with COVID. We have 271,000 deaths in this country from COVID. Uh, people are dying. I, I just read this and I haven't had a chance to verify it, but at one at the rate of one person per minute, yep. that can't, that, that's that, crazy. Absolutely yep. horrifying. Yep. So and meanwhile, you know, here he is rejecting. What happened was the Democrats came up with a plan. I think it was a $2 trillion plan uh, that was focused on helping people. Republicans didn't like it. They wanted to protect businesses, um, make sure they couldn't be sued so they could stay open. And so a bunch of legislature, legis legislators got together and they have all worked together to come up with a bipartisan bill for COVID relief that could be passed right away, but Mitch McConnell rejected it. Uh, and he's now holding that hostage. I know this sounds really familiar to you guys <laughs> um, because he's, he wants to tie it now to uh, the pandemic relief provisions tied to the spending bill, to the NDAA bill. So he's saying it will likely come in one package. And what did he do? This is so Republican. And this is kind of what I was referencing when I said, I want to see Democrats take some of this power. He just announced that he was going to uh, uh, take what Donald Trump told him and take that to the key Republican senators and they would come up with something and then that would be it. So no need to hear from any Democrats and no need to hear from bipartisan uh, folks. They just, he's just going to do what Donald Trump, you know, wants him to do. So the CARE Act benefits expired in July and we have set to expire right now, paid leave, eviction protections, you know, so many things. Senator Angus King was uh, on CNN today and he said, we really tried to come to a middle ground and we got tired of waiting frankly and i don't understand what the majority leader's problem is and i thought that that summed it up you so know sure. how far should how far should democrats go here i mean should they essentially accept even a quarter of a loaf here if it's coming from mcconnell i mean there's an argument that they should take any down payment they should get so that joe biden in his new presidency and the uh <laughs> slimmer Democratic majority in the House don't get stuck with the bill and the responsibility for the COVID relief action that's going to happen in the new year, which is essentially the playbook that McConnell ran in 2009 on Obama when it came to stimulus and Obama got stuck with the whole political and financial bill. Um, should Democrats just swallow whatever it is that McConnell is going to offer here, or should they draw a line and just say, never mind, we'll see you in January? Well, I think that is the great question, and there is no good answer, and Mitch McConnell's really good at this. I mean, this is what he does. He holds the country hostage. He forces Democrats to give up on things that are supposed to be helping regular people. Um, I think that Joe Biden has kind of indicated that he would like Democrats to compromise to get something passed, and then he's going to work on something larger when he takes office. I don't, you know, the whole thing, it, it's really disturbing to see how Mitch McConnell does this. And you said it was a, the repeat basically of what he did to Obama. It's exactly that. 
And there's no thinking about what's good for the country or what's good for these people. These people are dying. Their family, their families are suffering. And people can't send their kids to school right now. They can't go to work. I mean, it, this is a horrible, horrible situation. It's a horrible economic situation. It, it's it's a real drain on people emotionally to be sitting there with their kids on virtual school all day, um, missing their own work, not able to do it. it. So, but you know, Mitch McConnell doesn't care about any of that. It's all about sticking Biden with this. So Democrats, I, I wish that, that they could have gotten this bipartisan thing, you know, looked at even. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Like nobody would even look at it. So um, and and someone put forward. Um, oh, Mitch McConnell won't let put anything on the floor that has a veto threat on it. So that's their new. He has a policy of that. You know how good his policies are. He really sticks to them. What and when we have a Democratic president, these policies will all be erased, of course. They, they won't. They'll be non-existent. But it, it really depends. Uh, on this Georgia runoff as well. There's that to put into the equation because we don't know how much we're going to be able to get done. Yeah. You know, I, I have, uh, we, we've, we've talked a little bit uh, today about, and, and Matt and I and other guests have talked about Donald Trump's psychology. It's really kind of uh, a whole different bag of worms to try to open up the cranium of a guy like Mitch McConnell who seems, shall I say, kindly, barely human um, in terms of his level of empathy, uh, like zero or minus. Um, his presentation is uh, what psychologists call blunt affect. Um, it's a really frightening kind of uh, bureaucratic uh, evil that uh, we may be able to get past with the elections in Georgia. But when I got into Congress in 2006, and uh, we went through the financial meltdown, uh, Obama got elected in 2008. Remember, in 2006, we had a Republican administration under George Bush. Um, we, uh, began to we, we began to deal with a financial meltdown. There's a whole subject for the other day, but no bankers were prosecuted. But in the end, uh, Democrats uh, got blamed for the ills that uh, we were trying to fix that the Republicans had perpetrated. And this is not, that, that wasn't the only example of Democrats coming in to fix what Republicans had messed up and getting blamed for it by the voters. That's what happened in 2010. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a political uh, holocaust for, Dem for Democrats. How does Joe Biden and the Biden administration and Democrats who lost seats in the House, um, how do they avoid that kind of fate in this situation? Uh, given what Mitch McConnell uh, is doing. Uh, well, th this is exactly why I got into this business because it absolutely infuriated me the way things are reported. Because the, the he said, she said model of kind of reporting political news means that if a Republican comes forward and said Democrats wouldn't come to the table, that's what the headline is, right? But that's not the story. The story is that the Democrats were trying to fix a bunch of crap the Republicans broke on purpose because they hate government. 
So I don't, you know, at this point, the, the good thing that Joe Biden has going for him, I have noticed, and, and I was thinking about this long before he got chosen, um, to, before he got nominated, was he, the press really likes Joe Biden, they know Joe Biden, and I think I saw him the other day tell people, I'm not going to get into that with you over and over again, he's not biting on some of those attempts to drag him into that Republican narrative, I do think he's very savvy about that. And he has this likability that may help him a little bit with those stories and the way they're told, but that's not gonna last very long. And I, I think that this, get, again, it goes back to the media. I was hoping the Obama administration would do something about this, but they, had to, they spent their political capital very well on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we have this problem with media. We, if things get reported this way and the voters don't even know who's trying to help them, they can't vote for what is in their own best interest. And I have no problem with somebody voting for a Republican because it's in their best interest. But how many people is that actually true for? So Sarah, in the two minutes or so that we have left, I'm, I'm guessing Paul's the uh, uh, czar of the timing. Um, I, I'm going to anoint you the czar of uh, the incoming Biden administration. Um, tell me if you got to choose one thing for Democrats in the House and the new Biden administration to focus on to get done. That's realistic, right? I mean, because we're, we're probably talking about a McConnell-led Senate. What's the one thing they should focus on? What's the one thing that they absolutely need to execute on? Well, I, I would say two things, if you don't mind me cheating a little bit, um, because COVID has to come, that has to be- But you're the czar, so you choose, you choose. I, as the czar, as the McConnell, I say everything I say goes. I would like to have COVID relief for the people immediately done. Um, and I would like to pay people to stay home so that they can we can get this under control. But secondly, and I know Joe Biden agrees with that, one of his top priorities is to address the racial uh, injustice in this country. And he can do that through the DOJ. He can do some of this with executive orders and also the, oh, I guess it's three things, the immigration um, the, the undermining of the government and of the, uh, well, now I'm adding things. Okay, so, but these are things that Joe Biden can do a little bit with executive orders. Um, and also the undermining of the Affordable Care Act can be addressed a little bit through executive orders, as well as DACA, which I know Joe Biden is already planning on on reversing on day one, what, what Trump did to that. So I do think there's hope that there's many things Democrats can do right away on day one, from the executive office. And after that, we're, we're back in the, the bloodbath with Mitch McConnell. So I think, Paul, you're, you're taking us out. You know, uh, it's been a fascinating show, Sarah. Uh, your perspective is really uh, important. Um, uh, I'm, I'm now, I'm now a, a big fan of Politicus USA. I intend to follow you on Twitter now that you've been on the show. I know that we're going to have 12.4 million uh, views of our show. We're going to have you back. Um, keep doing what you're doing uh, because you are an important voice uh, in our media landscape. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. 
Folks, it's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We have been talking with Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Check out Politicus USA for uh, the correct side and perspective on what's going on in politics. Uh, we will bid goodbye to Sarah. Matt and I will be back after this to wrap up. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL Podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Time to wrap up another exciting edition of Off the Record. What a time we had. We had Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, a really smart uh, journalist who's got a unique perspective on both the Beltway bubble, but more importantly, what's going on out in the Midwest, the Rust Belt and around the country, because she's got her ear to the ground and she can tell us what real people are thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Plus 12.3 million views, which I'm looking forward to off the record picking up as well. That's what we're headed for. So all you 12.3 million listeners out there, thanks for joining us on Off the Record. We'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks to the sponsors who keep WKXL on the air. We'll see you next week, folks.